One of the things I mentioned to our Wednesday night crowd is um, of all the chapter breaks and verses in the Bible, um, you gotta remember those chapter breaks and verses, thank the Lord for them, because I can tell you, turn to Ezekiel 36. Like, um, uh, can you imagine us trying to figure, find this all together if we didn't have verses or chapters? Turn to the book of Ezekiel and the part where God's talking about restoring Israel. Like, good luck finding that. But uh, we can say Ezekiel 36, that's helpful. But one thing you should know is as the chapters and verses were added centuries uh, after the Bible was given to us by the Lord, um, most of us say, you know what, the chapters and verses, they're not the inspired part. They just tried to help us out with that. Um, and some of the chapter breaks are unfortunate. This might just be one of the worst chapter breaks uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, and I'm not alone in saying this. This is a lot of scholarship. Here's why. The first half of 36, it ties perfectly into the, of chapter 35. And it's called the, it's the destruction uh, of the Edomites, uh, Idumeans. You know, these, this group of people we talked about on, on uh, Wednesday night. And that goes right into chapter 36, verse all the way to verse 15. Then... It's not only should be a chapter break there, but it's actually a whole new section of the book of Ezekiel. Um, we shift massively different gears as we get into Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 16, where we're gonna start talking about the restoration. Uh, Israel is in total destruction. We're about to go into a whole new section, and this is a, a great section. And the thing that makes this next section for us really fun is it's prophecy that's happening right now in our time. You and I are alive to watch and witness some of this, this unfold right before us. So we're, we're gonna do a deep dive into that this coming Wednesday night and perhaps the next Sunday or two, we'll be talking about these things. Um, before we get into that, it reminds me a little bit of something in my own personal life uh, that was left a, left a real impression on me. And that was uh, way back in 1982. Uh, it was June 7th my birthday, 16th birthday. And, you know, back then, I don't understand kids these days. You know, I sound like an old guy. Kids these days, have you ever noticed kids these days, they don't get their driver's license like on their birthday? Like they wait, I'll get it in a couple years, whenever. You know, kids just like, or whenever, they get the driver. For, when I was a kid, when you turned 16, your nose was pressed against the glass at the DMV at 6 a.m. Like you were ready to get your driver's license back then. And that's what we did. Um, so that's what I did. I was down there and got my driver's license and I had saved and worked hard the previous couple summers and I bought a, an amazing Volkswagen Squareback Type 3, you know, Squareback uh, pancake motor uh, and it was great. It was a thing of beauty. In fact, if you don't know what a Volkswagen Type 3 Squareback looks like, this, this is basically, this, this isn't mine, but mine looked just like this um, except it was silver. We called it the silver bullet, uh, um, but it was fuel injected. It was the first year they tried fuel injection back then. It didn't work out so good. Um, but it was, it was, for me, it was a glorious vehicle. I was so excited. I did my maiden voyage that night, June 7th, 1982. Took off, said goodbye to my parents, drove down the driveway and started heading out Highway 238 uh, there in Applegate Valley in Southern Oregon. And I was just going along, I was so excited. I was almost hoping someone would see me, that I was a mature adult driving my own vehicle that I paid with my own money. And I was so excited about this. Well, sure enough, my dreams came true when I drove by our church. There was some kind of wedding or something going on in the little country church out there next to the Ron's Market and the store out there. And I was just excited because I saw a bunch of my friends out in the parking lot and I'm like, they're gonna see me. So I, I, you know, got rid of the nerdy 10 and two uh, hand position and just kind of draped my hand over the steering wheel. 
You know, I was like, this is gonna, I'm gonna show them how cool I am. I'm driving my own vehicle, but nobody was looking. So I just tooted my little horn there, you know, just kind of let people know, hey, there's, there's breath coming through uh, and, and I'm driving and I'm mature and I'm a, a responsible uh, adult. Well, as soon as I tooted my horn, I saw a bunch of my friends as I was driving by, they, they looked at me and they kind of were looking puzzled and even a little bit horrified. The reason there was a Volkswagen bus that had stopped in front of me, gonna do a left turn into the parking lot of Ron's Market, and uh, I just didn't see him. I was too busy looking at my friends, going, look at me, how responsible I am. Uh, and I smashed, going about 45 miles an hour, I smashed into the back of this Volkswagen bus. And it was horrifying. Uh, my, you know, uh, how did my car look uh, after that? Well, I brought a picture of that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not the exact uh, picture, but it's close. Close. Um, now, now, my Volkswagen was totaled. The Allstate guy said, you're, you're this, this, this hunk of metal. Now, some of you are like, oh, come on, that's a classic piece of metal. It is today, but back then it was only 11 years old. Uh, and it was, it was just kind of a junky piece of metal. And they said, it's totaled, you can't fix it. And they gave me something like $300 replacement value for it. And I was heartbroken, all that work and, and all that, I was so embarrassed at how stupid I was. And man, you know, as a 16 year old kid, this was devastating. I remember just feeling totally, and I'm, I'm not one given to depression and sadness, but I remember feeling about as low as I could get. I thought, man, everything I've worked for for the past, you know, two summers, which when you're 16, that could be an eternity. And I just thought, it's just all falling apart. And a couple days later, the sheriff, who was a friend of mine, this was kind of picture Mayberry, Andy Griffith, um, he came up our driveway and he said, Brad, I was trying not to give you a ticket when you wrecked the other day, but uh, I gotta give you a ticket. You know, the, the family says you at least should get a ticket. And um, I hit this family who was in a Volkswagen bus. They're, they were okay, fortunately. But, um, but they, he gave me a ticket for reckless driving. Oh, do you know what that does to the insurance rate of a 16 year old boy? Um, oh my goodness, it was, it, what could be worse? You know, my life was over as far as I was concerned. And I thought, what am I gonna do? Well, as it turns out, there was this, this nice old guy that was part of our church and he'd heard about what had happened. He owned an auto body shop in town. And he came up and said, Brett, let's take a look at your, your Volkswagen. And he walked out back where we had the tow truck drag the piece of metal. And he said, you know what, I can fix that. I was like, what? I said, yeah, you know, I got some, some cool stuff. Let's bring it down to the shop. And this summer, you, you can help me with it. If you just pay for some of the parts, uh, we'll, we'll unbend this vehicle and get it back up and running. Well, it's cool. I went there all summer. Any moment I had, sanded, and we did some Bondo putty and stretching and bending and getting it all back into shape. And you know what? As it turns out, it really was quite a, a, a fun job to get it back to normal. Every moment I'd see the crinkled car, it would remind me of my own stupidity my own pride, my own failure. So getting it fixed up was really kind of a great thing. And I remember the day he put this beautiful brand new paint job on it. It was more silver than it was before. And you know what, before it was already kind of bent. I think somebody wrecked it before. Uh, it kind of wobbled when you drove. This, he straightened it right out, man. This thing was working better and, and, and it was more beautiful than ever. And I remember driving out of there just feeling, oh, this, this idea of having something that I ruined and messed up and destroyed, restored. It was restored back to pristine condition. Ah, oh, it felt good. It was, it was a, a new start. But you know, I, I remember that in my life, realizing that that's what the Lord does. He is in the business 
of restoration, taking bent up lives, bent up people who've hurt themselves and through pride or sin or whatever, we just crunch ourselves up to bits and talk about depressing and feeling like nobody wants to help and the insurance people saying, you're worthless. That's the way it tends to go in life. And a lot of people have been there. If you haven't been there, you will be. It's almost a guarantee. Very few people I know have never had a moment in their life where they felt kind of messed up and destroyed, crumpled up and worthless. People feel that and it happens, especially the older you get. In the book of Ezekiel, we find Israel in that crumpled up, messed up, hopeless state. What is the Lord gonna tell us? Here in our text of Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 16 to the end of this chapter, the Lord gives a word to them. Now, what's the word that he's gonna give? You know, you might think, well, he's gonna give them this word. You know, through Ezekiel the prophet, he'll say, you're a bunch of losers. You deserve to die and be erased as a people group. You have forsaken me and forsaken my, we've gotten some of that, by the way, in earlier parts of Ezekiel, but as it turns out, God has a different word. This is where Ezekiel shifts gears and he moves into a whole nother direction. And it's quite fascinating because it has to do with God saying, here's what I'm gonna do with this crumpled up nation. If you recall, most of the Jews were slaughtered in the mountains of Jerusalem, mountains of Israel. The ones that lived were in captivity in Babylon. There was a tiny remnant that went down to Egypt, but even they got destroyed. And Jerusalem was desolate, empty, and crushed. The temple was in rubble. The walls of the city were crushed into rubble. There was nothing good left. Everything was destroyed, and no one was there. It was a total place of desolation. Not only that, all of Israel became desert. The farmlands just were left alone. Uh, It just ended up being totally destroyed. And so the Jews, hearing Ezekiel, all these Jews in Babylon, they're all saying, man, what are we gonna do? And here's where the Lord steps in, in Ezekiel 36, verse 16. Let's read the rest of this chapter and then we'll break it up and look at it a little bit. It says in verse 16, it says, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered into the, unto the heathen, whether they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said unto them, these are the people of the Lord, and they are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, that is Jehovah, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. 
From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart will also I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit up, uh, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that uh, I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from your, all your uncleannesses and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field and you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and, in the, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by, and shall say, this land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, built the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall all the waste cities be filled with flocks of men and they shall know that I am the Lord. This is an amazing chapter that switches from the destruction of all the other nations. Uh, now we see the Lord saying, I am gonna restore, I am gonna rebuild Jerusalem. I'm gonna rebuild Israel and I'm gonna replant the desolate places. As it turns out, the Lord is into restoration. I love this about the Lord. Um, by the way, this is why we need to be really careful with the, the doctrine of replacement theology. Um, I talk about this a lot because most Christians uh, today in America, according to the various denominations, have chosen to adopt this, this idea that the church has replaced Israel that God is done with the Jews because they were horrible people and they did horrible things. And they even crucified Jesus. So they are no longer God's chosen people. Can I tell you how horribly dangerous that doctrine is? Here's what you're saying. God loved his people, called them his people, made promises that were everlasting promises to his people, but said, nah, I take that back. I'm gonna bail on the Jews because they were just so bad. I'm not gonna keep my promises that were eternal covenants with them. To say that is to, is to call God a liar. And, and the notion is this, the church has replaced Israel. We, you know, the Catholics believe this. All the Catholic church believe this. This is a dangerous teaching, if you ask me. Um, that's why, you know, the Pope is always talking about a Palestinian state and, he, you know, there's no pro-Israel in, the, in that because they don't see God's plan to rebuild and restore Jerusalem to this ultimate place where they're, they're, the Jews are restored completely. And it's a big goof. And here's why. If the Lord bails on the Jews, why wouldn't he bail on you? 
If God lied to the Jews and I'm making an everlasting covenant with you, why would he say, I promise I'll give you everlasting life? Why wouldn't he just say, you know what, Brett, you're just such a loser. I'm, I'm not gonna do that for you. That's not God. God is not a liar and he keeps his promises. And isn't it amazing? There's whole chapters in the Bible that say, don't be arrogant, you Gentiles, against the Jews, for God's gonna save Israel. Read Romans chapter nine, 10, and 11. But I've done whole teachings on that. Be careful about replacement theology. And the reason it's so dangerous is because, man, we, we can understand there's a beautiful truth here for you and me, and that is this. If the Lord can forgive and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, guess what? The Lord can forgive and restore and rebuild you and your life. And even if you are a sinful wretch, guess what? The Lord is good at that. The Lord says, like Bill Brennan said about my Volkswagen, you know, square back, he said, I can fix that. When nobody else said they could, Bill said, I can fix that. And the Lord looks at our lives and he looks at Israel and says, guess what? I can fix that. I love that. Um, by the way, um, you know, look at verse 31 in our text again here. Um, this is where Israel found themselves. It says in Ezekiel 36, 31, then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. You know, that's the problem. I, I see both a national story here, but I also see a personal application. We're gonna see the Lord restore over the next couple thousand years in history, we're gonna watch this prophecy of the rebuilding and the restoring of Israel. The verses that we read this morning are unfolding as we speak and have for the past 2,000 years. And we're gonna see the fullness of this come to pass when the millennial kingdom comes in. And by the way, um, a lot of the rest of the book of Ezekiel is gonna be dealing with the millennial kingdom, um, the thousand years where Christ rules and reigns on this earth. And Israel's gonna be the epicenter of that ruling and that reigning, and the Jews are gonna be a part of that. So this is the beginning of that discussion. And, and, and some of the things we are watching in our lifetime, like the, you know, the, the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews, that happened way back in AD 70, ultimately, where the Jews were scattered all over the world, Russia, United States, parts of the Middle East and other places. But the Jews have been slowly regathering since the 1700s, the Zionist movement. That's part of God regathering his people, just like this prophecy says. And he's gonna rebuild the walls and restore and make the land fruitful. That's something you and I have seen in our lifetimes. Um, you know, we talk about uh, Israel 100 years ago. It was desolate and barren. But in the past 100 years, by the grace of God, it's becoming more and more like the Garden of Eden. Like it says here, they shall walk through the land of Israel that is now barren, the Lord says here. It'll become like the Garden of Eden. That's happening right now. That's one of the things I, I do when I bring our groups to Israel. We drive through the farmlands and it's amazing the, the technology and the Jews coming up with these high-tech drip systems. Maybe even more amazing in the last few years, the Jews have come up with these really efficient desalinization plants where they take sea, salty seawater and convert it to be beautiful farmland water. And they water their, they've got water coming out their ears in, in Israel, which it's not, it's a dry and barren land but we're seeing the land of Israel come back to life and the fruit and all that. We've, we've talked about that in previous studies. But that's the thing, you know, we see this as, as a, a restoration and a rebuilding, and we're gonna talk more about that in our coming studies. But right now, Israel's at their lowest point, maybe in all of the history of Israel. 
right here in Ezekiel 36, where they're sitting in rubble and in destruction, in captivity, and Ezekiel gives them this promise of restoration. That's what the Lord's gonna do. And he does it nationally with the Jews and he does it personally with his people, Christians. And there's just a few points we need to cover. Number one, the promise of restoration. It's not just here for the Jews, but all throughout the scriptures, we get these beautiful images of what the Lord does to ruined lives, to the people that are in total despair because of their own mistakes. Um, and, and you know what's amazing is how, how, how you and I, we can so quickly destroy our own lives. We make mistakes. But the Lord says, you know, I, I can fix that. Oh man, how many times have we seen that almost cliche scenario? Nice looking guy marries a nice looking girl and they're married, young couple. And then they, they get pregnant, have a couple kids, crank out a few kids, and, and then pretty soon that guy's kind of like, you know, my wife's not as fun as she used to be. That's because she's elbow deep in diapers and you're not helping. Yeah, but she's a grouch. I don't even like being home as much. So you spend more and more time down at the gym, getting your body in shape. You care about your body. She doesn't, she's at home with the babies. But at the gym, oh, there's all these pretty girls that give you attention and they like you. Your wife doesn't, but, but, she, but she, boy, all these girls at the gym. And so you start thinking, you know what? I could do better. And so you stupidly, as so many have done, think that they can do better. So they divorce their wife with the kids and start a new life with some, some young girl that's, that's, you know, she actually doesn't like you. In fact, she thinks you're kind of weird. But to make sure that she likes you, you do what you know makes girls like you. you. You buy the polyester shirt with the open collar, gold chain, and make sure a little chest hair is popping out. And you're like, hey, baby. And you got the, I'm sorry if you have a red sports car convertible. That, that's always a, a, a thing of this equation. You get the red sports car convertible and you slick your hair back and you're the 40 something year old guy, maybe 50, who, who the young girl's going, oh, honey, you're so awesome. She really hates you, but she likes your money. And so you, you, you do this classic midlife crisis thing, and, and, but you, it's gonna be okay. I'll have the kids over for Thanksgiving, but when you invite them over for Thanksgiving, your kids say, dad, mom cooks way better than you. We're not going to your house, whatever. Well, well maybe, maybe my daughter, she'll at least have me walk her down the aisle. Uh, and, and, and you never get the, the request, why? Because you didn't really raise her. She doesn't even hardly know you. And she definitely doesn't want you there to ruin her wedding. They might give you some little seat off on the side where you can sit during the wedding just because you're biologically connected, but your kids, they're not linked to you and you're wondering, why, what have I done? And then that girl that was there for the money, she realized you're actually in debt and you went way over your skis buying the red sports car and you don't have as much money as you appeared to have and so she bails. Now you're alone, you're getting older and a little bit more out of shape than you'd hoped uh, and, and, and now you've got no one. Your family doesn't like you, everybody's left you, you're broke and you're sitting there alone wondering what in the world happened and why is your life a heap of ruin? That happens way too many times. Or what about the, the poor girl who's a young girl doing everything right, trying to do things good and raised in a good home, but she's got a boyfriend and she goes out that one night, it got a little hot, steamy, and suddenly she finds herself pregnant. Her boyfriend's like, well, of course, you're gonna get a abortion, right? I mean, of course, we're not ready to have a, a baby. And, 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 and you know that you shouldn't. Your nerdy pastor at church always is saying stuff about 
abortion being evil, but you also know that one in three women have had an abortion in our country. And you think, well, everybody must not be that bad. And you think, well, I'll get some good solid advice. So you go to Planned Parenthood and you tell them, I'm thinking about getting an abortion. What do you think? And they explain, it's just a fetal blob of tissue. It's not even a baby. Right now you're in a perfect situation to take back your life and don't let this ruin your life. And, and it's just fetal tissue. And so you listen to their lies and, and you go through with the abortion, but something in you tells you you're doing something that's horribly, horribly wrong. It goes against everything in, in nature that God has put in you. But, but you hear the world screaming in your face, you have the right and it's your body. But what the Planned Parent people fail to do is tell you how you're gonna feel for the years after that. What they fail to do is talk about the psychology of the woman who's had the abortion and how painful that can be for decades to come. That's where the church has to kind of pick up the pieces and we see all these poor women who've bought the lies and been through all that and thought it was the solution at the time but it's only haunted them and plagued them for many decades to come. And man, if you only knew how many women, when, especially when I talk about this, I get women by the droves that come up after I talk about this stuff and they say, Brett, you're not even putting it strong enough. You don't even know how brutal it's been for me to have to live with this over the years. And nobody's there to help after the abortion. And you're heartbroken. And, and even though you can kind of go on with your life and everything, you can even have the exterior and the surface that things are good, but you feel that your life is in a heap of ruin. And guess what? The Lord can reach in and say, guess what? I can fix that too. I can fix it. You're a young up and coming influencer. You're a Gen Zer. And you've got an Instagram account that's like nobody else's. Oh yeah, you, you, you had to kind of fake some pictures to make them look like your life is really amazing. But, but you did it and your, your life does look amazing, at least on social media. And you wanna be an influencer and, 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 and so you even pay the money to get those fake followers. So you get up to like 100,000 followers and even though they don't know who you are and they, they're just paid, but at least it looks like you're popular, which actually makes you kind of be popular. Wow, 100,000 followers, click, 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 click. And people start liking, 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 liking. And you've got, suddenly you're an influencer. You're living your dream and you're influencing the world and you're traveling and you're amazing. But the problem is, as it turns out, the real people that are following you, they don't like you that much. They actually even say comments in your, in your thing that you're kind of like, what? And, and suddenly you're just told, those are just haters. Those people that are criticizing you for your influencing and what you're doing online, they're just haters. So what? They don't like pictures of bikinis or they don't like this or that, whatever. They're just haters, haters, haters. And, and pretty soon you realize, wow, there's more haters than there are likers. And there's a lot of people that actually aren't being influenced. In fact, you're not influencing anyone or anything, but your life is sort of fake. And I've seen this now, it's been around long enough to see a lot of disillusioned young people. And if you think I'm making this up, did you know one of the leading causes of young teens in suicide is their social media. The social media is leading kids to want to take their own lives and depression, massive levels of depression among young people. And many people are attributing it to social media and becoming influencers and having this fake online life. And, and, and you wonder why does my life feel so empty and ruined? Guess what? The Lord would reach into there and say, guess what? I can fix that. 
See, the Lord is into restoring our broken up lives. We're the stupid ones that got the crash. We're the ones that were prideful. We're the ones that did it wrong. But guess what? The Lord, he says, I can fix that. And he promises that in his word. Let's break down our chapter here and see how the Lord does this for the nation Israel. But it's also, we're gonna see how he does that for us personally. The first thing here is the promise of restoration. And notice in verses 24 through 26, there's quite a list of good things that the Lord's gonna do for Israel. He says here, for I will, verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. One of the first steps in restoration is to get you out of the bad situation you're in. And you gotta repent and turn away from those things. You know, get out of you know, the bad place and get into the good place. The Lord says, I will do that. I will bring you and gather you where you need to be. Then verse 25, I will sprinkle uh, clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from your idols, I will cleanse you. A new sp- uh, heart will I also give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. Man, I'm gonna sprinkle you with fresh, clean water, wash you up. See, it's our stupid sins that stink us up and dirty us. And you might feel dirtied by your sin, whether it's the, the, the cliche, you know, midlife crisis person, or the woman who's destroyed because of the abortion, or, the, or whatever the thing is that we've done, the Lord says, I can wash you from your sins. That's what God's so good at is cleaning, washing. I will cleanse you with, with, with water, pure water. By the way, one of the ways that shakes out, of course, ultimately when you're saved, it's by the blood of Jesus. But even if you're a Christian and you've found yourself wallowing in sin, guess what? The Bible says stuff like this. Jesus said, John 15, now you are clean by the word that I've spoken into you. Uh, Paul told the church that Jesus in Ephesians 5, 25, he says that Christ washes his bride, the church, in the water of the word. Psalm 119 says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The Lord wants to wash us clean. You might be dirtied and messed up by your sinful failures, but the Lord says, I can clean that. So he, he pulls us out of the destruction. He cleans us up, but notice he fixes our heart. You get a heart transplant. I will take your heart that's stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. By the way, one of the most tragic things when you see a person's life destroyed is they become hard-hearted. Because of their own failure, they almost find themselves not caring about people and they don't even wanna hear it from anyone. And your heart is what's all messed up. Boy, I wished I could have given my Volkswagen a heart transplant. You know, it would have been nice if somebody came and said, Brad, we got a Porsche motor that we can drop into that Volkswagen for you. That'd be great. Uh, I didn't get a heart transplant, but that's what the Lord does. I'll take your stony heart that's hardened and I will give you a heart of flesh and put a new spirit within you. This is all part of the Lord's restoration of your life and it's what he's good at. He can do the spiritual heart transplant. Now, the word heart there, some of us are thinking all Valentine's Day and stuff. Forget that. The word heart here is um, the Hebrew word lev. And the Hebrew word lev, it's by definition, your soul, your mind, and your emotions. In the New Testament, the the Greek word, when it's used in the same context, is the word psyche, where we get the words, you know, psychology and stuff like that. It's the part of you that thinks and feels, your soul, your mind, your emotions. 
So when your life is destroyed, one of the things that's really damaged is your soul, your heart, your mind. You get depressed, you get anxious, you get hateful, you, you, you blow off people that love you. But the Lord says, I, I need to fix that stony heart of yours. And, and the troubles that we have, and the older we get and the more troubles we have in our history, the harder our hearts can become. But God's gonna change your heart if you allow him. If you let him do that restoration process, one of the great things he does is he'll swap out your heart, your hard, stony heart with a heart of flesh. Man, I love that. Not only does he wanna swap out your heart, he wants your life to become fruitful again. When you're in destruction, man, there's no fruit. By the way, the Jews, did they know what famine was at this point? Famine? Well, if you've been studying with us, do you remember how horrible the famine got? Like, I, I barely even wanna mention it. It was so bad, both the Bible and history tells us horrible accounts that women were eating their children in the walls of Jerusalem because of the famine and the besieging of Jerusalem. Like it was, it was grotesquely people dying because of starvation and it was a horrible, evil thing. And here the Lord says, I will multiply, this is 3630, I will multiply the fruit of thee of the tree and increase uh, of the field that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Man, when you're in trashed situation, when you're broken and beat up and stuff, you, get, you got this hunger within you. And the Lord says, I'm not gonna let you go hungry. I'm gonna feed you. And I'm gonna make you fruitful once again. Not only fruitful, but rebuilding. He wants to rebuild the ruined life. Uh, we see that in Ezekiel 36, 33. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the waste, the word waste, they're literally garbage, shall be builded. Those of you that know your history, the starting to rebuild Jerusalem after this started with them taking the garbage of the city and piling it up and making a wall of defense, a little project led by Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel. Um, these are interesting guys that the Lord started to rebuild Jerusalem. And we started seeing that. And then the Lord is rebuilding Israel. And even as we speak for the last couple thousand years to ultimately reach the fullness of what Ezekiel 36 tells us about. So we have the promise of restoration. But then notice with me the premise for restoration. It's an interesting thing. Why does God like to restore stuff? I think we learned something from this situation with Israel. Does the Lord say, I'm gonna restore you because you're just amazing people. See, sometimes we make a mistake because the Jews are God's chosen people. We sometimes make a mistake in saying the Jews are amazing. They are amazing, but we almost glorify. Some of us Christians who know God still loves the Jews and has a plan and a purpose for the Jews, we almost exalt the Jews weirdly a little too high. And we always talk about Israel and how wonderful and perfect they are. But one of the things you have to understand, they're very far from wonderful and perfect today. Do you know that? They're sinners just like us. I talked about this in the Prophecy Update on Friday night. If you missed it, you can go to YouTube, Athey Creek, and check out our Prophecy Update. Kind of important stuff that we covered. But I was showing how Israel's following the United States horribly in all kinds of sin and debauchery. They're not fixed yet. The Lord hasn't fully restored Israel. He's regathered them. They're becoming blessed and fruitful but they haven't had that heart transplant. That's coming, that's coming later after the fullness of the Gentiles. Whole nother teaching for that. But what was the premise God gives? Is it because he just thinks they're amazing people and they deserve it? No. As it turns out, our text tells us, in fact, let's take a look. Verse 22, 
um, the Lord asks sort of rhetorically the question and then answers it. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, say unto the house of Israel, thus say the Lord God, I do not this, the restoration, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. I will sanctify, that means to set apart, my name, my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. The Jews had become so far from God and so rebellious and ugly in their sinfulness, the world was looking at them from the outside in going, those Jews, aren't they supposed to have a God named Jehovah that is supposed to be good and taking care of them? What's up with their God? And the, the, the name of the, the Lord God, Jehovah, was profaned among the heathen because of the behavior of the Jews. Question, does the name of God become profaned because of the behavior of his church? Man, I hope we are good examples of God's mercy and grace and people go, wow, God is good. But sadly, I have to say, some of us as Christians in the world today, we're not very good representation of the Lord. I think some of us, if we're not careful, if we act bad enough and you know, greedy enough or don't care about the poor enough or don't love our enemies enough, then pretty soon we become very much like the Jews in Israel who were just doing all kinds of sinful stuff and the world's like, huh? I thought these were supposed to be God-following, Christ-loving Christians. And we end up profaning the name of the Lord. But the Lord says, I will not have my name profaned among the heathen. So God says, why am I gonna do this? It's not for your sake. Israel, this is, this is pretty radical. It's not for your sake, but notice what he says here in this verse. He said, it's for mine holy name's sake. The name of God, boy, that's an important issue. Uh, in the Bible, the name of God is so important as, as it relates to his nature and his character of who he really is. The name of God is sort of synonymous with the nature of God. And so his name throughout the Bible has all kinds of depth and meaning. He's called Jehovah. The I am of, uh, is, of Exodus. But he's also the Jehovah, he's called Jehovah Tzidkenu, our righteousness. He's called Jehovah Rapa, our healer. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Jehovah Nisi, our banner. Like the name of God is so important to his nature and the Jews had destroyed the name of God because of their own sinfulness. And God says, I will not have my name profaned among the heathen. So it's not for your sake I'm gonna restore this, but for my name's sake, because I am who I am, I'm gonna do merciful and compassionate and kind-hearted works to restore you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. I'm gonna do it for my namesake. By the way, this idea of restoration, it's almost always linked somehow to the name of the Lord. Check this out. Maybe you know these restoration verses. What about Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm? It says, he restoreth my Volkswagen. No. He restoreth my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for what? His name's sake. Why does God restore our soul and lead us into the path of righteousness? For his name's sake. Same, same. Um, another famous restoration verse. And I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. You guys have heard that one, right? That's a famous restoring verse in the Bible. In fact, the book of Joel is this amazing book about how Israel was destroyed by these bugs. And God calls these bugs his army. God sends his bug army and destroys the nation. But check out the rest of this. I will restore the, unto you the years the locusts have eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar, the palmer worm, 
my great army which I sent uh, among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. Notice again, it's the name of God that is associated with his restoration of God's people. Um, that's one of the great things. When the Lord restores your life, one of the outcomes that will happen, if the Lord is the one restoring your life, one of the outcomes is that people go, not, wow, you're amazing. I, I've noticed, have you ever noticed people that pulled themselves up you know, out of alcohol or tried to rescue themselves and they, they sort of take the credit and they write a book, well, how I conquered this and how I conquered that. But those things are very fleeting. But when the Lord does it, people just go, man, God has restored my life. Then the name of the Lord is exalted. That's always the, the way the Lord wants it when he restores your life. So you've got here, number one, the promise of restoration from God. You've got the premise, which is that it's his name will be glorified. But that brings us to the last and final section, the price of restoration. What is the price of restoration? Well, I'll approach it this way if I could. Uh, two things, the price he pays and the price we pay. First of all, the price he pays. What is the price that he pays for your restoration? When I went to Bill Brennan and said, man, I, I gotta fix my Volkswagen, but I don't have a lot of money. I'm thankful for him that he uh, you know, gave me the, the good guy price, just the cost of materials, and then I had to do a little work myself, but that's not the way the Lord does it. The Lord pays your price in full. And he throws the Porsche engine in it as well. Maybe the Porsche itself, who knows? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He pays your price. How does he do that? Well, as it turns out, there's many ways, and I could give you hundreds of verses from the Bible that explains the price he paid. Some of them are very important uh, that we just wanna show you here. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13. Um, uh, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm getting ahead of myself. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. One of the things Jesus did was perfect, no sin in his life, but he took all of my sin and for crying out loud, all of your sin, now we're getting quite a heap of sin with you and me combined, Woo. But if that's not bad enough, the sins of the whole world were piled on Jesus who knew no sin. He, God, who made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to, to be sin on our behalf. And so because of that, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is the price he paid. That's why we as Christians uh, get uh, worshipful and thankful and uh, giving glory to God when we think about the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't deserve any of that. He took the hit for me. Died on the cross, was buried, rose up from the grave, ascended into heaven. This is what God did for me. He paid the price. Um, also, in addition to these scriptures, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, for the just and for the unjust. Man, Jesus died for all sins and all at once. Uh, not only that, but 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is the way Jesus paid the price for us. I love that old saying, you know, he paid a debt that he did not owe. We owe a debt that we could not pay. But Christ did it, 
dying on the cross. And anyone who will believe and accept the work of the cross, the Bible says, shall be saved. Okay, Brett, you said that's the price he paid. You said also, what about the price we pay? Well, as it turns out, it's a pretty low price. But there might be a, a mentionable price. Brett, I thought he did it all. He did. But there is something required of you. And what's funny about this is we see this here even in our text. Uh, look at one final verse in our passage here. Ezekiel 36, verse 37. It says, thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. That's a mouthful. King James way of saying something very simple. He's basically saying this, all you gotta do is just ask. Uh, I will have the house of Israel inquire of me and I will do it for them. That's, that's the way he says it. But it's really simply, Israel, all you gotta do is ask. It's interesting how the Lord wants it to go through our mouth before he actually does it. Um, I think that's important to know because that's how you're saved, by the way. You're saved by just asking. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ that God raised him up from the dead, it says you will be saved. With confession, the mouth is made unto salvation. You gotta ask. Um, it's amazing how the Bible says you have not because you ask not. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. The Lord wants us to ask and hear for the restoration of Israel, God says, all you gotta do is ask and I will restore. So if you're one of those people, and maybe you're not the cliche midlife Chrysler dude with the hair coming out of his polyester shirt, or maybe you're not the poor woman who got caught up with the whole abortion mindset that thought it was awesome and great and you had the right to do that only to find out that it's heartbreaking and life-wrenching, or whatever it is that you've found yourself with your life hurting or in, in destruction, the Lord says, I can fix that. And the way he does it, it's the same way. He pours his clean water on you and washes you away, all your sins clean. He gives you a new heart and he saves you. Um, it's, it's Christ in you. Your old stony heart is gonna be tra transformed and changed if you allow him, if you ask him. And, and it's like Jesus said, you were born in death, so you must be born again. You gotta be saved. Before any of this can be effective in your life, the stuff we're talking about, you gotta be saved. You gotta accept Christ and the work of the cross. Without that, you're stuck in your sin. You're stuck in your disaster. But when you turn to Christ and accept Jesus, then he says, I'm all about restoration. And you get to drive out a shiny new person, saved and forgiven. The Lord doesn't hold grudges. The world might remember your crash. The world might remember your dirtiness and sinfulness. But the Lord says, I will remember your sins no more. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Why is it that the Lord does this? Why does he love wretched, miserable sinners like us? It kind of reminds me of the book of Hebrews. It says, we have a high priest. That is the one who intervenes on our behalf, who was, was challenged or tested in all points like as you were. In other words, Jesus, our high priest, knows your hurt and he, he knows your pain and he also gives you value that no one else in the world gives you. The world tries to say, you're valuable, you're good enough, you're smart enough. That's a bunch of nonsense. You and I, we're total losers according to the Bible. Sinners, horrible wretches. But as it turns out, God sees value in you. That's what matters. 
It's not you finding value and I'm, I'm awakening the giant within. No, you'll find a pipsqueak there, I'm sorry. There's no giant. You'll be disillusioned. But to understand that the Lord loves you, I'm reminded of a little boy who went into the little pet store in that small town and he wanted a puppy so desperately. But the puppies, he asked the store clerk there in the pet store, how much are these puppies? And they said, $50 a piece. Oh, $50. Son, these are well-bred little puppies. You, you, can't, you can't find a better puppy. $50. The little boy reached in his pocket. He said, sir, all I have is $1.47. Will you let take a dollar for it? Of course not. That's ridiculous. He said, come back, son, when you got $50 and you can have a puppy. Right about that, the kid kind of walks down with his head down and sad when he hears a little yelp as the wife of the store clerk comes walking from the back part of the store holding a little puppy and he's like, what's the deal with that puppy? And he said, oh, that puppy, that, that, that puppy's a little runt and it actually was born without a hip socket. Its hind leg doesn't move and it just kind of barely can walk. The little boy said, I want that puppy. How much for that puppy? You want this puppy? You need a puppy you can throw the ball and run and have fun with. And the boys know that that's the most valuable of all the puppies. And the store clerk, no, it's not. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give them to you for free. The little boy was so excited. He said, but I won't take this puppy for free. I will pay the full price. And he gave him his dollar 47. He said, I will bring a dollar in every month for the next several years until I get the, this little puppy full and paid for. The clerk said, this is ridiculous. What's, what are you, why are you so into this puppy? And the little boy pulled up his pant leg and showed a prosthetic leg. I love that story because the Lord looks at you and says, I value you. I'm gonna pay your price and then some. While the world says, no, you're not worth that. You're a loser. And you even convince yourself that. I'm not the giant that I once thought. I'm not the influencer that I once wanted to be. But when you realize your value is in the way Christ looks at you, and he knows your hurt and he knows your pain and your suffering. He can relate to you. And he says, I value you so much that I will die a brutal death on the cross for you to restore all the years the locust have eaten. I will rebuild, I will restore, I will make your life fruitful again. And that's what Christ has done. Most of the people in this room, I bet would say, yep, that's exactly what the Lord does. And, and if you're in a place of, of real destruction and you've made it your own way, let the Lord do it. No one can restore your life like the great and amazing work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, how thankful we are that you are into restoration. We see this nationally, what you're about to do with the nation Israel. Even in our time, we're seeing those promises come to pass nationally. But Lord, how we're so thankful that personally, all throughout your word, you talk about how you take our sins and you put them as far as the east is from the west and you remember them no more. Old things passed away, all things become new. Lord, how thankful we are for your restorative work. And Lord, I have no question that there's people in this room that are still wounded from their own sins and their own mistakes. And I pray that they would just ask. Lord, that they would first make sure that they've asked for that free gift of salvation and confess their sinful nature and repent and confess their faith in you and the cross that you died and were buried and rose from the grave. But after that, Lord, the, the destruction that's in our lives, I pray that you would begin that restorative work. That Lord, you'd make old things 
pass away and all things new. Help us, Lord. Be the one to do this for us, for we can't do any of this apart from you. Without you, we can do nothing. But with you, we know that all things are possible. So I pray blessing upon these, your people, Lord, and just ask your covering. If you would, just keep your heads bowed and in an attitude of prayer. If, If you've been saved for a lot of years, but there's something in your life where you still have done stuff that has kind of ruined a lot of things. I wonder if maybe today on this 4th of July, if the Lord would say, all you gotta do is ask. I can restore those broken things. I'm good at that. You might be like from the scratch and dent table at the store. <laughs> uh, we're not guaranteeing anything here, but you can buy it for a cheap cost. And you might feel like that, but guess what? The Lord does that. He, he fixes the scratched and dented people. That's what he's good at. But also, if that's you and you're saying, Brett, I wanna do that, just, just right now between you and the Lord, pray the prayer, ask for him to help you restore the messed up things. Just do that right now. If you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted Jesus, what I would also do is invite you to become a person of faith and believe. Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. Why not get saved? What a great day to become a Christian on the 4th of July. You want real life and liberty? <clears throat> do you wanna see what real happiness is? It's not that your life will be rosy, but happiness comes when you know you're headed for heaven. When you die on this earth, if you're a Christian, you have nothing but heaven to look forward to. But salvation is to anyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Why not do that today? I'd like to give you an an opportunity to do that if that's you, or maybe you're online watching with us right now. You can pray this prayer of confession if it comes from your heart. It can't be just some incantation that you're reciting. It's gotta be a real belief. It's also gotta be real repentance. And you repent and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And then confess and you'll be saved by the grace of God. It's right there for the taking. If you wanna do that, would you, if you're in the room here, would you just acknowledge that with everybody else's head bowed in prayer? If that's you, would you look up and and give me a quick wave? Just acknowledge that and I'll just acknowledge you. You, me, and the Lord right now. Awesome, good, good, good. I see you. Lord sees you. Back in the back, right here, good. Over here, good. Anybody else? Let me just look around. I haven't got to look at the whole crowd yet, so make sure I can see. Awesome. I'm gonna pray this prayer. I'm gonna have the whole church pray out loud. And if you're you're watching online, you can pray right along with us. Lord will hear your prayer. But let's say this amazing, beautiful prayer of confession of faith. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray blessing upon these people who've just confessed you and and believe, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be stirred that they'd know that they're no longer held in their sin, that Lord, you're gonna do a work in their life of restoration, ultimately, Lord, where we go to heaven to be with you. What a glorious future that is. But Lord, I pray that you'd protect them from doubt. Lord, I, I ask that you'd get good Christian people to come alongside of them and that they'd be discipled and built up in faith. Lord, how we pray blessing upon these people who've just confessed their faith. 
I pray, Father, for this whole congregation that we would look to you and put our hope and our trust in you. We thank you for being a God of restoration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.